Jesus were the outcast of society in Jesus' day. Yet these simple night visitors were the first to hear the good news. They are a reminder that Jesus came to redeem the simple, the outcast, and the downtrodden. Our reading this morning is from Luke 2, 8-20. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and peace on earth to people he favors. When the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. After seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. could listen to that voice read all day long. (laughs) Well done. Thank you, Fenlessons. I appreciate you doing that for us. Thank you, Nick, for getting that candle lit so quickly. It's impressive. That last song we sang was was beautiful. It was sweet. The the lyric, for you, O Lord, our souls in stillness wait, is where our minds go when we think about this time of year, we think of silent night, holy night, this all is calm, all is bright. We're thinking of in the sense of how we receive the Christmas story and receive Christmas's arrival. We picture it being in the evening and the stillness in the manger. All of that kind of imagery uh, makes this uh, even more beautiful to behold and to participate in. I think it also reflects there was a, a, a part in our text that told us that Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. There's a, a spirit of reception, of course, that she has. She's um, honored and blessed and humbled to be a chosen vessel and instrument of the Lord uh, to bring the Savior to this earth. And so she is pondering them. She's holding them. This is the, the spirit of response that we imagine. But of course, we know that isn't always the way Christmas is received. While our lyrics and our our um, writings and our readings and things are focusing on the stillness of the evening of his birth, we have to remember too that it was the world that was sitting in silence, that there was this dark cloud of spiritual oppression of sin and deceit that rested over the whole world. If it wasn't there, then Christmas would be unnecessary. And Christmas arrives 
and, and breaks into that world of silence with uh, a heralding of this um, most incredible message that truth has come, that the Savior of the world is born. It's into that silence that this message comes breaking in. It's like the shattering of glass, and it's this force of nature, of course, to be able to uh, behold even the message as it's being told. And in the reading that we just heard, there are two sets of characters, two chief characters or sets of characters that we're going to be zeroing in on in this nativity drama. The unlikely recipients of this greatest message are, of course, the shepherds, but then also the otherworldly messengers, the angels that come and proclaim this message in such a terrifying and profound way. I'm often thinking about how I would have done things so differently if it were my message to announce. If I were going to proclaim the arrival of what would be so transformative in the history of the world... I know that I would have gone about it differently. And in hindsight, I would have said, okay, I did not get it right. Somehow, in some way, God knew exactly what to do with whom and where. I would have approached marketing strategies. I would have probably consulted focus groups. I would have talked to some of the most successful campaign strategists to figure out how do you launch this thing that I anticipate is going to make a profound impact on the world for, for generations to come. That would have been the goal. That would have been the hope. And the Lord did everything opposite of the way that I would have done it. And I dare say that any of us would have done it by sending his message to the most unlikely recipients in the most profound and spiritual way that would be almost unbelievable to anybody else who had to hear it second, third, fourth hand or generation after generation. It's really like setting up the entire reception to be like, nah, I'm not buying it. And yet somehow it worked. Somehow it took root. Somehow it did transform the world in which we live. The a couple of points that we want to make here this morning, the first being that God heralds astonishing truth in unlikely ways. We don't hear the word herald much, and my mind goes right back to the peanuts where we are introduced to herald angel. Um, I forget the setting of that, but it was sort of a misunderstanding of the hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And so heralding is this proclamation of this shouting. We would picture it being like shouting from the rooftops, using the megaphone, getting the message out there and doing it with with gusto and with with energy. It's a heralding. And the truth that is being heralded is astonishing. It's mind blowing. It's 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 world changing. It's world upsetting. It's world upheaving. But yet God says, I'm going to birth this literally in the most unnoticeable of places. I don't know what you know about Bethlehem, but I figured I would do a little bit of an experiment since we're good Mainers here. Good Mainers here. Apologize. I said too many R's the first time out. Let me just throw out some towns. Okay. We're just going to talk about the scale of Bethlehem and the unlikelihood of this actually being effective and successful. I'm going to throw out some towns and we're going to do it like they do at concerts and late night shows and stuff. If I announce where you're from, where you were born or something, I want you to just give it a shout like, oh, oh, you know, all right, let's give it a try. Uh, Aeroseek, uh, Atkinson, Charlotte. These are all Maine. Don't think Carolinas or anything. 
I like the sound of this one. I don't, I don't know if I'm going to get it right. Shabigu Island. Did I, did I butcher it? You've heard of it? What? Shabig. You're missing a few syllables in there. That's, that's such a Mainer way to do it. I bet when they wrote it, like, oh, this is going to just roll off the tongue. And Mainer's like, nah, we'll shorten it. Totally murder the, uh, Shabig. Shabig Island. Denny'sville. Still no shouts. Merrill. New Canada. I like the sound of this one. Rogue Bluffs. That sounds like something out of a Stephen King movie or something. Rogue Bluffs. What do all of these towns have to do with the others? And what do they have to do with Bethlehem? They're the same exact size that Bethlehem was. We've all heard of Bethlehem. These towns have about a few hundred people. So I also was like, well, just to put it in perspective, what are some of the small towns we know that we're familiar with, some that we have connection with? I believe, I believe that Jeremy Jones is from the Bingham area. Everybody knows Bingham. Um, let's see. Uh, we've got Monson. We've got another evangelical free community up there in Monson. Uh, we've got a friend of mine over here that works in Liberty. We know that town. Got an elder and his family that are from Somerville. There we go. She got the, you can always count on Karen to get, you know, know the assignment. Those towns are two to three times bigger than Bethlehem. And that starts to register for us because we've been through those towns and we're from those towns and we're like, man, they're small. Nothing significant happens there except for Karen coming from one. But Bethlehem is going to be the birthplace of our savior. It has some history where it was also the death place of Rachel, who was the beloved of Jacob, as she was giving birth to Benjamin, who would be one of the, the head, he would be the head of the, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so there's history there. There's, it, it matters in, in history for the Israelites, but also in prophecy for what was to come. The greatest uh, the greatest person ever would be born in its location in this place known as the house of bread. We heard the prophecy from Micah 5.2 last week, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So God chooses an unlikely location and he delivers the message to very unlikely recipients. People that we wouldn't necessarily think, okay, this is where it's going to take off. When people hear these guys talk about the story, there's going to be credibility. There's going to be impact. I bet they're great storytellers. All those, all of that seems lost in who he chooses for the angels to appear to. They're shepherds in their fields. Now, we are fascinated by shepherding now. We have uh, some in our own congregation that have some experience with this, and there's a science to it, there's an, uh, um, an education to it, all of those sorts of things. But at the time, this was a very looked-down-upon occupation. They were uneducated. They were the outcasts of society. They were engaged in very dangerous work trying to defend the uh, the sheep from threats. And so they were discardable in that sense. Hey, well, you had to face a bear, so too bad for you. That's kind of how they looked at all of these things. And, and even when it came to worship, they were on the outside because they were continuously ceremonially unclean according to rabbinic law. They were the outcasts of outcasts. 
which of course is going to make them unusable in courts as a witness. No one's going to believe their testimony is going to take them seriously. So where does the greatest message arrive? Right in their laps. You go and tell others what just happened and we'll see how far you get. It's not the way I would have orchestrated it. Paul reminds us, though, that that's not the way that God does things. He doesn't go after the high and lofty saying, this is how I'm going to propagate my messages to pick the most credible people who have all the sway and the influence, have all the financial resources and all the cachet and everything. No, he goes to those that are the downtrodden, the outcasts, because those are the ones he wants to save. Paul reminded us that we are to consider our calling. Not many of us were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. I know that some of us need to be reminded of that this morning. I know that there is an epidemic of of doubt, of self-doubt that goes on in our uh, community around us and in the in in the the life that we live that we just say, well, there's no way that God can use me. And rather than me just pump you up and say, like, if you guys remember the old character from the 80s, Stuart Smalley, who would look in the mirror and say, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough and doggone it, people like me. You know, that's not, I'm not bringing this up for some form of self-talk for us to pump ourselves up and say, yes, I am worthy and yes, I am. Be reminded that God chose even the most outcast of us, the ones that cannot get it together, the ones that can't seem to uh, impress others. He, that, that was his plan from the beginning. So rather than trying to talk ourselves up to a standard that we believe we need to achieve, we need to remember that he came down to us. It's almost as though the, the rabbis of the day and the religious elite who would shun the shepherds and keep them on the outside, it's like they forgot their heritage, their lineage. Because biblically speaking, shepherds were in good company. They had Abraham, they had Moses, they had King David, they had Amos, they had all of these that they could point to and say, why are you, why are you kicking us to the curb? All of these guys spent time in the fields. All of them smelled like sheep. This is the reminder that they needed to see is that this is who the Lord has used for us to follow and to hear the voice of God. And then, of course, we would see that as Jesus uh, walked this earth, that he would identify himself with the shepherds. He would say, I am the chief shepherd. He says this in John 10. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I, in Christmas, we are always reminded of Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. That, that the Messiah will come. He will be the wonderful counselor, the everlasting father, the mighty God, the prince of peace. We know that those are the titles that are, are true and right. They are deserving to be ascribed to him. And he is all of those things. Yet he seems to identify the most with his role as shepherd. Because the Father ordained that the nature of his redemption, that that this story and this process of our salvation would appear in the form of a lowly outcast shepherd. So I guess it makes sense that that's where his message began. This is what we need to understand, that there is no portion of God's love that is reserved for the high and lofty. Sometimes we think about that. Well, God was... 
he was so pitied uh, towards me that he let me in, but he really wanted those others. There's no aspect of God's love that he says, I'll put up with you, but I really love them. His love is even and distributed to all, and he, and he loves the high and the low alike. But the reality is, is that for us to find him, for us to come to him, we all need to be brought to that low point. We don't come to him high and lofty because we are faced with our own brokenness. We are faced with our own sin. And so that is the immediate uh, playing field leveler as we all come to him just as needy. Jesus had said that unless you have the faith of a little child, which we instantly think of as being, well, they're quick to believe. They don't overthink it. They don't explain it away. All of that's true. And I think that's all meant in that instruction. But do we not also understand that to have the faith of a little child means to be brought low and not to think too much of ourselves, to not think that we are not as needy as the others. We're all in that same boat. So the Lord is sending this to an unnoticeable location to unlikely recipients, knowing this is going to work. And I'm sitting there scratching my head now. In, in hindsight, of course, it did and still does. But I'm looking at this going, how could this be the plan? Well, one of the ways in which this was delivered to be of immense power was these unnamed heralds, these angels that would come and deliver the message. Let's go back into our text in Luke 2, and let's read in verse 10. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and laying in a, and lying in a manger. Now, the text here tells us an angel, and I'm not sure why the angel isn't named. Uh, we don't know exactly which angel this is. Gabriel has shown up at least four times in other passages of Scripture to announce the arrival of, of uh, the, the kingdom of God. And Gabriel, Michael are angel names that we recognize that we've seen mentioned specifically in scripture. So we don't know if, if this is Gabriel, but when he came to Daniel back in Daniel eight and nine, he explained to Daniel the prophecy. I mean, the, uh, the visions that he was seeing about the arrival of God's redemption. And then in Luke chapter one, we, we talked about last week, the, the, uh, the, the, um, uh, why am I thinking? Anyway, Zechariah, can't even think of his title right now, but Zechariah is um, hearing the message from the angel Gabriel that your wife is going to have a son. He is going to be the one to point towards the arrival of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And Zechariah had sort of a, a, a you know, a brain cramp moment. So this can't really happen. And so Gabriel's like, pff, pff, what did I just say? It's going to happen. Gabriel goes to Mary. You're going to carry the son of God. So Gabriel features very prominently in this announcing of the arrival. So is it him? We don't really know. It's just interesting to think about. And it's, and it's interesting for us to be reminded of the various ways in which the Lord sends his message. But one thing that he does say that all the angels have to say right out of the gate is don't freak out. I'm here. Get over it. Compose yourself. It doesn't sound like the little fat chubby baby with the fluffy little wings, you know, don't be afraid of me. You know, it's like, it's not, not, not that fear invoking, right? 
No, this I think would be better imagined is some kind of warrior-like presence, intimidating and 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 beautiful and and bold and powerful. To be in and anytime we encounter anything that seems to be from the spirit world, it is unnerving and it's this kind of thing of like, wow, it I don't really so it probably doesn't need a big, big splash for us to kind of, you know, lose ourselves in the moment. But the idea here is that the angel says, Don't fear, and he's come in power, and his presentation is awe inspiring. They're always having to tell the uh to tell mankind, don't freak out. And then what he says is even more astonishing than his presence. And when the scripture is saying, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. This tiny little phrase packs in so much of what we need to know about who Jesus is. This message is carefully worded and it's packed with so much understanding, this has been labeled as a, a mini Christology. We know what theology is. Theology is a study of who God is. And yes, by the way, a few weeks ago, I got in trouble with about 90 people in this room because I made the passing. Some of you know exactly where I'm going. I made the passing comment because I was setting up the fact that I wasn't as smart as some of the people who had commented on something. So I said, hey, I'm no theologian. And like 90 people that have gone through our, digi- uh, our digital, see, DGT, hate that name. Anyway, um, the DGT uh, was, uh, you know, we learned that we are theologians and that we grow in that. And here I am saying, I'm no theologian. No one's like, hey, did you not read the book? Yes, I did. But in theology, we are studying God. What a Christology is, is a specific theology about who Christ is. And it's packed right into this. We, we're asking the question in the announcement, who is this baby? Who is this baby that would split time, that we would measure time based on before his arrival and after his arrival? Who is this baby that will change the course of history, that his fame continues to, to, uh, c- continues to, to move across the world? Who is this baby? And that it was answered for us, uh, again, by the angel in Matthew 1, that she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Because the scripture is saying, or the proclamation, the heralding is saying that he is a savior. He's our rescuer. You know, it's interesting because we, we think about being saved from something in the, one of the more common places that we go in our minds is somebody's maybe who drowning, who's drowning in uh, water over their head or maybe in a burning building or something like that. And you can be saved from those things uh, involuntarily. Someone can drag you out of that water, drag you out of that burning building. You could literally look at that person who is your rescuer and say, why did you do that? That's not what I wanted to happen. That's not the way that we become saved. In Jesus, we aren't beat over the head and dragged across the line. And then we look and say, I wanted nothing to do with you. Why did you rescue me? It's clear from the scriptures that only those who acknowledge their need for a savior actually are saved. So even at this time of year, we say that God so loved the world that he came to bring peace to the world. And we want to have it have this blanket covering over everything. And yes, it's available, but do all receive it? Do all say, thank you, Lord, for making that salvation uh, available to me? No, they don't. Only those who recognize their need for saving can be saved. 
again, in our little Christology here, we're introduced to the fact that he will be the Christ. This is not his last name, but Christ means Messiah. Or Messiah means the chosen one or the long awaited one, the greatly anticipated one. That he would be the one that we've been waiting for. He is the Christ. He's a savior who is Christ, the Lord. The Lord here is not just a title of respect, not just saying, yes, Lord, and, and looking up to a master or somebody. It is the Lord. He is the consummate Lord. He is God in human form. There's no none higher than him. All of this is packed into this tiny little announcement that this very impressive, intimidating angel is making to these unworthy, unrecognized shepherds standing out in their field. The whole time, the greatest message ever heard, and you can picture the little lamps doing their thing. Thinking, what are we hearing what we think we're hearing? And suddenly, verse 13, there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. So one's enough. One's enough to say, don't freak out, don't fear. And now all of a sudden, the angel makes the proclamation, and then the rest come in and say, yeah, what he said is right. It had to be, I don't know, unnerving. To, is, is, I don't know if there's a, a word in our English language of what this must have been like for these shepherds to receive. But they come in and make this declaration of peace. They say that peace has come. This will be a sign for you. I'm sorry, that they, uh, the Savior who is Christ the Lord. And and uh, I'm jumping around. I'm sorry. Lost my place. Verse 13 and 14. All right, 14. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. We don't really know what they're talking about. Apart from Christ, we don't know the peace that the angels are proclaiming here. Certainly that wasn't... a uh, true of their world that they were living in. We're now in 2023 and we would look around and say, okay, we still don't know that peace globally across the whole span of everything. That peace doesn't rest on the whole world like a blanket. When we think of, of peace or we throw out our good wishes or some um, hippie writes a song about peace in the world, they're talking about um, th- this global aspect of peace out there somewhere. Can't everyone just get along? Can't we stop the wars? Can't we, can't we stop the fighting? But what we find is we can make those proclamations over things global, but personally, we're still in turmoil. Personally, our hearts are at war. Our relationships are a battle. It's not enough to just proclaim a distant peace, one that is available to rest on the whole world like a blanket. No, he says, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is a different translation than the one that comes to our mind from the tradition of Christmas. In the older translations, you know, peace on earth, what? Goodwill toward men. That's what we think of. And that goodwill towards men has that tendency to feel a little bit more distant, like that peace has come for everybody. So just tap into it and be good. Be nice to each other. It's the time of Christmas. Be kind. But the, the translation here is better for us, gets more to the meaning of what's taking place here, that this peace on earth would be among those 
with whom God has received unto himself, those that have received the Lord themselves. Now we belong. Now we're in a relationship. Now that peace is in me. Uh, Epictetus, a Stoic philosopher, said this, while the emperor may give peace from war on land and sea, he's unable to give peace from passion and grief and envy. He cannot give peace of heart for which man yearns more than ever for outward peace. The philosopher is saying that the powers that be in this world aren't able to just say, um, listen, I changing the laws. Now you guys are at peace. There's something that eludes the heart of man. No matter how much external peace is attempted or provided, it falls short. And Hebrews have a culture of saying, I have a custom of saying shalom to one another. And we know that shalom means peace. But the meaning of peace is more, again, than we just doing this and saying like, hey, I hope you're cool. Hope you got those good vibes. Hey, don't punch me in the face. We're all at peace, man. That's not what this is. It's it's really a wanting, a desiring for you to have well-being, to be healthy, to be prosperous, to have security and completeness. But really what the Hebrews are going for in this is something that has more to do with the peace of character than the peace of external circumstances. What an empty notion it is for us to just wish external peace on everybody. We can't guarantee that. We can't change the events of the world around us. There's no way for us to order that. So it's just an empty platitude of wish unless we're wanting something that is actually attainable and available that God has provided and Jesus makes this peace specific to the presence of the Holy Spirit in John 14. He says, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Then he connects it in the same speech to verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives this external wishing you, hey, maybe we can legislate some laws, make it more peaceful. No, that's not the kind of peace I'm giving to you. He says, and so therefore, don't let your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. If God knew that the arrival of his son meant all of a sudden the world's going to get along, no more wars, no more bad guys, any of that kind of stuff, Jesus would not have to say, neither let your hearts be troubled or afraid. This peace wasn't coming to fix all of those initially. This peace was coming to land in the hearts of those who would receive it. And Jesus came to bring peace from the inside out. This is important for us because we are always chasing the external fix to what are most often internal problems. The things that I can see, the things that are out there offering themselves to me and everything, I go chase those things because I think my peace is something that comes from the outside that I can take in. Jesus says, no, I work from the inside out. I bring peace to you so that those other things are not your rescuer. They are not your savior and they won't break your heart. There's an aspect of all of this arrival of truth, though, that I just want to point out. Because we did say that Christ is our rescuer. We have titled this that that the heralding is breaking into the silence. And we know that this dark and silent night is all still a part of our analogy here. 
So when truth is spoken, when this proclamation, when this heralding is happening, what it's doing is it's attacking the silence because we think sometimes that if we just shut things down, shut the noise down, we can kind of tuck it away in the closet and it's not doing any more damage. But the problem is, and we know this all too well, is that the lies thrive in the dark stillness of our hearts and minds. We think we're at rest and we think we're at peace and then all of a sudden these thoughts come into our minds or we replay these tapes or we have these attacks of lies in our existence. Hasn't it ever seemed weird that, you know, in the middle of the night you have these thoughts that are like, man, during the daytime I just don't think like this or I'm not worried about this or this doesn't freak me out. We have other things in the daytime, responsibilities and distractions that keep us from replaying the tapes. But in the stillness of the night, you don't have that luxury. And they come back and haunt us. I want us to see that there's hope in this proclamation of truth because truth needs to be proclaimed to attack the lies of the darkness. Jesus had told us where the source of these lies would come from. He was uh, referring to initially, at least like those um, those that were against Jesus, who were supposed to know better, the religious elites. And he says in John 8, he says, you're of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. How do we know? Because their nature was conducting what the nature of their father was. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. Don't expect anything different from him. It's who he is. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Why am I going into all of this? Uh, Oftentimes when we're talking about communication difficulties, uh, sort of like in a one-on-one discipleship environment, I will take people to Ephesians 4 because Ephesians 4 talks to us a lot about this idea of putting one thing off and putting something on in its place. And it it hits heavily on this idea of communication. And most of us would say, the problems that I have in my life or my relationships or something are communication. And that may be true, but really what's going on really at the source is what's what I am communicating, what's coming from my heart. Jesus says the things that are inside that come out. And so there's this little path that the scriptures take us down to help us to understand that there is a better replacement for the things that the silence often leaves us with. So as an example, in Ephesians 4 and verse 25, it says, therefore, having put away falsehood, tuck those lies into the closet. Okay, so it says, put those things away, which in our mind, we think I've dealt with the problem because I've closed the door and it's just sitting in there. He says, having put away falsehood, let each one of you, or what's implied here is the word instead. Instead of, instead of ruminating on these lies, tuck it away into the closet and instead let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, proclaim or herald the truth into this silence, into this darkness where these lies want to fester and live for we're members of one another. In another place, it says, if you're a thief, then stop stealing tuck that in the closet and instead go work with your hands and then go work with your hands and then give to those who are in need. So then the question becomes, when is a thief no longer a thief? Some would say when they stop lying, the scripture says, no, it doesn't stop there. You can stop lying, but then you've just created sort of this vacuum of silence where the lies are still able to fester and ruminate and grow. So God says, put on instead or replace it with instead 
the truth. When you're, when you're stealing and you, you say, okay, I want to stop stealing. So what do I do? Well, I'm, I've no longer stolen, but your reputation in the city is watch out for that guy. He'll take your stuff. So what do I do instead? Well, I go out and get a job and then I start giving to people in need. And then that reputation is just like, this is a really generous person. Think even the Ebenezer Scrooge transformation this time of year. See, the point in all of this is that if we just, if we, if we don't proclaim truth into darkness, the lies are allowed to fester. They're allowed to grow. But when truth is proclaimed, it becomes a declaration of war, and it is a war on the darkness. It is a war on the light. This is why churches are exhaustive in their, in their uh, encouragement for their people to learn the truth of the word of God. You need to be equipped with it so that you can speak it into the lies to combat it. Paul says in Ephesians 5, for at one time you were darkness, but now you're light in the world. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Jesus, Jesus broke into the silent night of Satan's deception to expose his murderous intentions, his true character, what he was after. So whenever we live in the truth, we're beating back that intention. We're beating back that power. Let me make a a second point as we wrap this up a little bit. The second point here is that God heralds astonishing truth through these unlikely messengers. Not only were the shepherds unlikely unlikely recipients, but now they were going to go bring the message to others. Instead of the angel just going, okay, we got the shepherds taken care of. Let's go over here and go visit with the political establishment. Let's go over here and visit with the rabbis and everything. He said, no, we're good. We just got the message out to the shepherds. It's their job now to move it forward. Strange method. This is what happens, verse 15, when the angels went away from them into heaven, when they gathered themselves and figured out what in the world did we just see, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them according, uh, concerning this child. What we're seeing here is the response that we should have. The response that you and I should have when encountering the astonishing truth, the proclamation of the arrival of the Savior for our sins, we're seeing in the shepherds how we should respond to this. It's laid right out there. First, they're going to believe. They're going to take that belief and they're going to turn it into obedience. And that obedience is going to be the kind of thing that they can't contain anymore. And they're going to proclaim it basically from the rooftops. By the way, it's the same pattern that we see happening at the empty tomb when Christ is resurrected. It's like, do you believe what you're seeing here? Now go tell others. Believe, obey, and tell. This is a simple formula. But it is seemingly the natural reaction when your mind is blown from what just took place. You can't contain it. You can't sit still. You can't just stay out in the field and say, well, that was fun. Hey, what's that sheep doing over there? You're pretty much over whatever the sheep are doing for the moment. The Lord has made this known to us, they said. They've taken their belief, this belief that now they can't argue with. We, we would, if we were in their position, we'd be like, I think I'd believe too. Pretty amazed at what I just saw and heard and everything. And we'd say, if God just kept doing that sort of thing, then we'd all believe like they did. 
But we've seen plenty of other examples where that has basically happened, or at least the equivalent in some ways, and it doesn't change where people are at in their belief. Many were clamoring to Jesus and saying, what is the work that we could do to get into heaven? What is the work that we could do to, uh, to receive salvation? And I, I don't know if Jesus air quoted then, but he said, if you want to do a work, it's not really a work, but what is required of you is to respond with belief. Believe what you're hearing. The whole book of John, as we studied, it was like these things were written so that you may believe in the name of the Son of God. And in believing, you'll have life. So the response for us here is to actually believe. And there's this incredible relationship between faith and work. We don't receive the salvation that's being offered to us because we've earned it. But if it doesn't transform us into going out and working because of the belief that we have then it's failed or we have failed. There's an incredible relationship between the two. Some days it takes work for us to believe. Can we just admit that? I think that Christians should be a little bit more honest about the fact that sometimes this doesn't make a lot of sense. And sometimes because the truth being based and founded on miracles uh, is difficult enough